Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. So please go buy three copies. It helps Denny's retirement fund. That's right. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, we're doing something a little different. So you know, different. One, Can you imagine us doing something different? It happens. So it episode 132 was all about questions and answers, and we took a bunch of listeners' questions and answers, and we still have a few more to get through. But really, the fun one was we had a friend of the podcast, uh, Dave Taylor. He dropped a block. <laughs> yeah, and, and there and, were some good ones. And by block, I'm talking... More than the concrete shoes that the Mafia used to use, size block of questions. <laughs> and so we're actually going to sit down with Dave on this podcast and have him ask his questions directly to us, and you'll see what sort of answers we give. And, you know, Dave has been brewing for a really long time. I first uh, met him in an online fashion over 20 years ago. So besides uh, us answering his questions, we ask him some, too, about his brewing and what he thinks about things. So uh, we hope you're going to enjoy the world according to Dave. But before we do that, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get started, we got an announcement or two and a piece of feedback for you. Yeah, and so our first announcement is, if you haven't paid attention, last week's episode of The Brew Files was all about making hoppy lagers with Jack Hindler out of Jack's Abbey's Craft Lagers out there in Massachusetts. Now, you guys kept telling me when I was writing about hoppy lagers, go talk to Jack's Abbey, go talk to Jack's Abbey. I talked to Jack's Abbey. You can now listen to Jack's Abbey, and I highly recommend it because, you know what, those beers are good. Yeah, I know. I'm jealous I didn't get any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. See if I share with you again. We also want to remind you that uh, Virtual Homebrew Con Online is coming up June 17th through 19th. It's going to be a great event. Lots of uh, good information. We're having uh, forum meetups, stuff like that. Uh, I'm hosting the AHA forum meetup. Uh, how about you join me for that, buddy? I suppose, but I'm kind of antisocial. Yeah, well, I know, but we'll let you in anyway. That's going to be happening uh, Friday night, uh, June 18th, from, uh, oh, I think it's about 6 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time 
So make your own adjustments. But definitely get in on HomebrewCon. You can go to homebrewcon.org, find out what's going on, and get registered for the event. And you can even hear me talk about Cezanne. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want me to talk this year. I don't know, man. I, I think I'm taking it personally. Ah, don't take it personally. It's just your voice. Oh. <laughs> okay, I believe that. <laughs> and don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for the last time... This part of year is... It is called World Central Kitchen. And actually, we're going to be running this through the end of June, so you got a little bit of time to get in on it. Great organization run by Chef Jose Andres, who uh, helps feed people where you are by collecting money to hire people where you are to provide food. Uh it's great. It's it's a way to give money and get it back locally. So please go to Patreon and give us some bucks to give to them. We are actually kicking in on this ourselves. So whatever you give, we're going to match. So hurt us bad. Please. Please. And now, of course, it's time for my favorite segment of the show. And don't worry, you can always get in this segment of the show by sending us a message at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or leaving us a text or voicemail at 626-7651-AL. But now, it's time for your feedback. And we have one piece of feedback this week. It actually comes from a conversation I was having with my friend Andy Ziskin. Hi, Andy. Who listened to our show about the things that have changed since we started doing this podcast. And he pointed out that we missed one very important thing. Cans. That's right. (laughs) Cans. And he's absolutely correct. I mean, you think about it. In the last six years... What has happened to the bottle? The bottle has dang near died. And, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you still see the occasional bomber around, particularly from folks like Stone and whatnot. But nowadays, it's all about the can, baby. Yep, that's true, man. Uh, cans are definitely the way to go. And it's cool that uh, people have finally realized that. Well, and also now we're seeing a lot more canning technology brought to the homebrew level. So, like, I have a canner. I know Andy has one. Uh, a couple of people in the club do. I've seen cans in competitions. There's a couple of cool gadgets out there. Uh, which one? Uh, Tapa Cooler, I think, is one of them that actually is making a homebrewed size can filler so that you can actually sort of minimize your DO and whatnot, just like almost like a counter pressure filler, but now for, for cans. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see where this goes at the homebrew market level. But Andy is definitely right. If nothing else, at the professional level, Cans went from being, oh, okay, that's cool. I mean, actually, I think when I started doing this hobby, cans were like, dude, why cans? Cans are a sign of bad beer, man. To now it's like everybody's in cans, and if you're not in cans, then you're an old fuddy-duddy. Cans are ubiquitous. Yep. So there you go. That's our piece of feedback. And now I think it's time for us to get on with the show. Yep, let's do that. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Mr. Dave Taylor about... His questions, our answers, and lots and lots of other things. And his opinions. That's right. So please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. Hey everybody, welcome back from wherever we've been. Uh... Today, we have a very special guest with us. We have uh, Mr. Dave Taylor. Now, Dave and I have known each other online for many, many years, but uh, this is the first time we've actually talked, isn't it? I believe so, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I feel like I know you anyways, though, because we've talked <laughs> so much. Yeah. I can't it's remember. It's been like almost 20 years, I think. I don't That's know. What I, 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 that, I can't pinpoint that, an exact date. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. It probably like goes back to the Northern Brewer Forum or something like that 20 years ago. It goes to rec.craft.brewing. Oh, my God, that far back even. Oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what Dave and I have discovered is that uh, in many ways we think a lot alike about home brewing, and in many ways we are polar opposites when it comes to home brewing. And Dave sent in a, a nice list of questions for us that really appealed to my uh, curmudgeonly side. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, Dave and Drew and I will be discussing these questions, and who knows, there may be answers, there may be more questions coming up. So uh, let's, let's kick into gear here. Dave, I'll, I'll let you go through the questions. So what's number one here? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. The first one I asked on here is: uh, Do hundreds of millions of people just love the aroma and presumably the taste of cat pee? Yes. Next question. <laughs> I agree, Drew. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know what? It's just you know it's subjective, man, and. People say, like, you know, certain hops like Simcoe uh, taste and smell like cat pee. And I have to say that my experience is sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And maybe it's due to the hops. Maybe it's due to the way you uh, perceive things. Uh, so, I mean, so what what particular things do you get cat pee 
when you when you use them or taste them? Uh, Simcoe and Mosaic, particularly, and I do pick up the uh, the fruity character from them, the the mango and you know those tropical flavors that you're looking for, uh, blended with with the nastiest litter box you've ever smelled. You know, I've got a bunch <laughs> of cats, so I know all about. And now when I clean the litter box, it's more like, hey, it smells like mosaic in here. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it's it's a little more plastic it, and diesel. It, it, I, I think if you substituted hops for actual, oh, yeah, I shouldn't even say this, right? If you were to do that and did a blind tasting, I don't know if we'd be able to tell the difference. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man, I you know maybe it's just me, but I I almost never get that from Mosaic and very seldom from Simcoe. So maybe maybe I'm blind to it. Yeah. I again I I tend to think it, a lot of it has to do with the way the hops are treated. But well, I, don't have any, like, I mean there are certain varieties. Info. I mean there are certain varieties like the classic one to me is Cluster. Cluster to yeah. me always smells like a combination of cat pee and blackberries. Yeah, it does. Sounds like Oregon. Well, there you go. But no, I mean, it's funny that you that you keep that you mention it as that cat pee sort of thing. Yeah, of course, I think most people would just say catty uh, because cat uh, cat urine not a very appetizing topic. But uh, it's part of the reason why, particularly older American hops, and I really think all the way up to say like Cascade and whatnot had a sort of negative reputation on the world market because they did have a catty character to them. But I think as we've gone up, I haven't really gotten cattiness out of Simcoe. I used to get some of it out of Columbus. Actually, no, maybe some some batches of Simcoe, but good batches of Simcoe didn't have it for me. And, yeah, frankly, I don't think I've ever gotten into Mosaic. I usually get uh, PVC diesel and blueberry out of Mosaic. (laughs) Mm, Um, Yum, three of my favorites. Oh, hey. But to to answer your question, Dave, yes, a lot of people out there do, and <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I think part of it is that uh, people, part of that flavor keys, and probably this is more so for older older brewers and older beer drinkers. It keys your mind into that sensation of watch out. This is going to be this is going to be bitter, right? And yeah. it's just a. I think now that's just a flavor association that's been built up. Yeah, well, I would like to know what exactly it is that causes that. So maybe we'll have to get in touch with Stan again and uh, get some some real definitive info, huh? Oh, yeah. There's definitely some kind of chemical makeup in there that you could probably pinpoint, you know, a handful of coals or something that are doing that. Yeah, you know, and I would really like to get his thoughts on on if it's something in the hops, something that's due to uh, how they're handled, uh, you know, like uh, sometimes being harvested later can do stuff to them. Well, I just did a quick quick little search. harvested late, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just did a quick little search to to verify, and so according to what I'm I'm finding here, and it, it does jog back into my memory, uh, the cattiness, the cat pee, is from a sulfur compound. It's one of the ones that people have been talking about recently. You know, like all the all the um, Scott Janish hop chemistry stuff that's been coming out for MMP. And so, for MMP is 
apparently in a lot of the New World hops. Simcoe is apparently notorious for having high levels of it in Citro as well. And while a lot of people get for MMP as, uh, as pine and tropical, others read it as cat pay. So, and it's yeah, a right. sulfur compound. Yeah, so so it's as much just in the way you're genetically wired to perceive things as anything, huh? And then the, and then the compound itself, yeah, P methane eight file three one. Okay, so now we have our first indication that Dave may be a genetic mutant. <laughs> well, it, 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 uh, it, may, it may be one of those things like cilantro. <laughs> yeah, it could or, be. I yeah, mean, it, I can say this. Yeah. Um, they say the same thing about uh, asparagus. Like after you uh, eat asparagus, sometimes uh, when you when you pee, you'll either smell an offer or not. Some people cannot yeah. detect. It. Well, in that conversation, I think it's time for the next question. <laughs> next question. Let's go on. Uh, is cohumulone worth consideration? Yes, next question. Uh, and I think you might have covered that on the last episode. I think it, you guys were talking about cohumulone a little bit, right? Yeah, um, you know, I know that years back people were saying, oh, you know, high cohumulone hops will give you like a, a harsher bittering character than a lower cohumulone hop. And then a few years ago, I started hearing that that was not the case whatsoever, and cohumulone really made no difference in that regard. So, Drew, what what have you found? You know, I haven't actually gone back to revisit it, because I can tell you that a lot of times, if I'm still making a classical West Coast IPA, even if I'm using my traditional bittering hop for that sort of stuff as Warrior, right? I use, I use Warrior for all my bittering in American styles, and I use... Um, I use Magnum for almost everything else. But if I'm making a classical West Coast IPA, I still tend to throw in some Chinook, you know, just to just to get a little bit of that cattiness, just to get a little bit of that cohumulon roughness, supposedly. And, you know, I've never actually gone back to visit it again because that's just how my brain thinks of it. But I do, <laughs> but I do know that with a West Coast IPA, if I just use Warrior, I don't get the same bite that I want. Yeah, I mean, for what I'm doing West right Coast... Yeah, when I'm doing West Coast IPA, it's almost always Chinook for bittering, uh, not Warrior, because I want it to be slapped in the face from that. So, Well, I guess and this is another thing we're going to have to get in touch with Stan about. And if anybody out there who's listening has any info, <clears throat> please write in podcast at experimentalbrew.com and let us know your thoughts on Cohumulone, because basically... We don't have any idea. Well, I should say we don't have any idea what the latest research is. We we have what what our our years of experience have led us to believe that may or may not be wrong. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Okay, Dave, next question. All right. Uh <clears throat> why do many uh treat yeast selection like it's an afterthought instead of perhaps the most important ingredient of all? I Ooh. would argue that because People don't like to think that most of their flavor comes from something they can't control. <laughs> and I'm being yeah. serious. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, you go and you sit down, and you play, you play in Beersmith or Brewer's Friend or whatever your your recipe developer of choice is, and you're sitting there and you're going, "Ooh, I want this malt, and I want this malt, and I want this malt, and I'll take these hops, these hops, these hops." And we hate the fact that a good portion of the character that that you're going to get, unless you're choosing a relatively neutral yeast, is going to come from that yeast strain. And it's just not in our control. 
You know, I, I think it wasn't until I started brewing Belgian-style beers that I really started realizing how much yeast can contribute and to, to carefully choose that as an ingredient as opposed to just going and grabbing a pack someplace and tossing it in. Um, you know, I, I, and I don't know why more people don't realize that. I, I think maybe it's because it, it takes some time brewing to realize that there are subtleties between different yeasts. And, you know, and I mean, obviously there's going to be like a huge difference between uh, why yeast 1056, the American ale yeast and, and some Belgian strain. But then the, there are subtle differences, like say between 1056 and 1272, you know, and American ale. And what, yeah, right. You know, which is a little bit maybe more fruity and, and maybe even nutty in a way. But, it's just one of those things that I, I don't think is like sexy, like hops or something like that. Well, and this is the reason why I still encourage people, even in this day and age, when you go, you look at every yeast manufacturer's website and they can they'll give you tasting notes, you know, that may or may not have dubious relations to reality. One of the most illuminating experiments that you can do, and it's very easy for everybody to do at home, is to do that split split batch with two different yeast yeah. strains. Because the second that you do that, you suddenly realize. I mean, not only can you tell the difference between, you know, 1056 and 1272, you can also, as we showed in one of our experiments, you can taste the difference between White Labs 001, Y East 1056, and USO5, even though they're nominally all supposed to be the same strain, you can tell right. the difference between those when you taste them side by side. And I think that is one of the most important lessons that brewers can learn. Oh, yeah, I just split a batch of uh, West Coast IPA between... Uh Y yeast fourteen fifty and Lollaman BRY ninety seven, and it's like there is just a world of difference in in mouthfeel and uh, less difference in in flavor. So Dave, have you got any like favorite yeasts you get back to all the time? Oh yeah, um, <clears throat> I've been uh, playing around a lot with S one eighty nine. Oh yeah, I love lobbies. that stuff. Yeah, I, and I'm. I'm using it warm, and it still comes out just as clean. Um, oh, really? But, I've never uh, tried it warm. How warm are you going? Ah, I just did room temperature, like 68. And, uh, wow. yeah, it, it had a diacetyl problem for a couple of weeks, but that faded out after the yeast ate it up. So, um, Also, I like uh, the Lalamond uh, London. Um, it's similar to Windsor, except it attenuates a little bit more. Uh, that comes out with a nice, um, you know, you, you expect it to be fruity, but it's not necessarily fruity. It's, you know, it's just a clean, crisp beer um, with a, maybe a little more body than you would get from uh, different yeast. I, I like to use a lot of dry yeast. That's, that's what I've been experimenting with for years. Oh, I did, did a, I, I, I also did a warm ferment with SO4 really. Um, it turned out very lager like. I, I oh, fermented you're it at like I fermented it at seventy degrees. I was trying I was aiming for something like fruity, right? No. <laughs> it tastes That's, it, it tastes like a lager. That's I, insane. I swear. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, so I did, but I but I gave it a lot of time too. I, I left it sitting warm for like a whole month, I think. Uh, pretty close, and wow. I think that that might have mellowed it out in the primary. You know, I didn't transfer it. 
So do I recall you've played around with K97 a bit also? I did, and I I wasn't real thrilled with how that turned out, at least while I was young. Um, it took... Now that beer turned out okay, but it took several months for that yeast to settle out. I, I think it it's just a very powdery yeast. Um, so it so the beer tastes yeasty for a while. Um, but eventually that does settle out and turns out a, a good beer. Yeah. Now you also said the uh, same question for malt. Like why don't people pay more attention to that? And uh, to my way of thinking, it's because until recently, there just have not been a whole lot of alternatives, right? You've had a, a few big maltsters, and things were, I mean, there were some there were some differences, uh, you know, like between barley varieties like Maris Otter versus more American varieties and stuff like that. But really, everything was kind of so homogenous in the malt world that uh, people didn't really even think about it, you know? It was just, give me a sack of two-row. These days, though, with all the craft malts and stuff like that, man, malt can make a world of difference in the beer. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, um, and people- I like experimenting with you know different you know you know the same base malt from different manufacturers. You you can get uh, wildly different flavors. So oh, yeah, I, I, I've I've taken to you know if I stop at the local homebrew shop. Uh, take a couple of kernels of each one and chew on it and see which one you prefer. You, you, yeah. You know, it's your own preference. It's your beer. You're going to brew with it. Uh, grab the one that uh, that works for you. Yeah, and then you have to take into account how it's going to change once it actually gets into a beer, too. Although I will also say this is my point in time when I'm going to express my frustration with the professional brewing world right now in the fact that I swear – Every brewery I go to, all their beers are within the same three SRM of each other. You go, you you order a flight of all the brewery's beers, and unless they have, like, the outlying pastry stout, everything's, like, somewhere between three to five SRM. Wow. (laughs) Are three-quarters of them hazy as well? Well, Uh, only about half here in in L.A., I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Only half. half. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, next question, Dave. Uh, Does carapils truly do anything useful? And this is a several question. Uh, Oats, same question. Uh, And how do the results of those compare with uh, 15% of wheat or rye? So it's like a multifaceted question. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you're a multifaceted kind of guy, you know. Uh, Um, Yeah. I would say that Carapils, yes, does something useful, but that doesn't mean you need to use it all the time. Uh, my experience with, I mean, in terms of like adding body, right, I, I think that maybe maybe Carapils does some of that. Uh, it definitely adds a bit of flavor. Uh, oats, I mean, oats are supposed to like make a beer like, you know, thicker and give it more mouthfeel and stuff. And I swear to God, every time I use oats, the beer seems to turn out thinner than it would without them. Uh, how does uh, carapils compare to, say, like wheat, using wheat or rye? Wheat or rye, especially rye, you're going to get some flavor, which we'll get into here in a minute. Uh, but, you know, Does it do anything useful? Well, yes, but like any tool, whether it's useful and how useful it is depends on how you use it. And see, 
I'll disagree with you on the oat front, but you know I'm going to do that. Yeah, of course. I mean, oats are one of my favorite brewing ingredients. So, no, I do think oats do actually lend a I – don't, I don't even want to say they, they make it feel fuller. I, I think what they really do is they make it feel uh, fattier. Right there's a, there's a there's a kind of a more fat mouthfeel, and if you use particularly with like some of these daisies where there's a lot of oats in there, you can you can really start to feel almost like a, um, I don't want to say greasiness, but you know what I mean there's because it, it's not quite slickness, but there's sort of a, a almost a, a more sludgy uh, fatty type thing, which is the reason why I still advocate for oats in restraint. Yeah, boy, and I'll tell you, mm-hmm. when I think of a beer, sludgy and fatty is really what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, look, if you look at them in like the ways that you would have seen them used traditionally, so particularly like in say lower gravity bitters and milds and that sort of stuff for stouts, you know, because like malted oat stout was a, a thing for a while, or oat malt stout, um, you can see perfectly well where they work. I think the problem is, once again, with um, with great brewing prowess comes great restraint. Hopefully, but however, most American brewers greatly express their exuberance, uh, and so I think a lot of times oats and beers will get overused. So, Dave, what are your thoughts about all these? Uh, I have thoughts. Um, I recently made a wit beer uh, with forty-four percent oats, um, expecting you know um, that that creamy. Um, fullness or whatever uh what i ended up with uh, this was interesting uh running off well i i had a stuck runoff uh to begin with i mean this and, and and after the boil during and after the boil i ended up with this thick gooey sludgy murky stuff where i couldn't even measure the specific gravity with a hydrometer it was so thick uh, this it was crazy I, I think there might have been a conversion problem in here you know like a starch fest <laughs> but I, I was like well well what the heck let let's just go ahead and ferment it out and see what happens it fermented out just fine it turned out um, fairly clear thin um not too much true but the bottom like you might expect uh and ultimately ended up with like a regular wit beer it tasted pretty darn good i thought but <laughs> um so what did it did it add a sludginess and a fullness or anything to the finished beer no i didn't think so but it certainly did in the mash and the boil. <laughs> so, and, and the beginning of the fermentation, it was weird. Um, uh, with respect to carapils, I don't know. I, I just treat it the same as uh, uh, Pilsner malt. If somebody gives me any or it comes in a kit or something, I, in the amounts we're using it, I don't think it really is doing anything. Yeah, it, it's hard to say. Opinion. And I made I made it a is. pale ale recently and put in uh, oh maybe like ten percent carapils, just to to try and get an answer to that question. And you know I would have to make the same beer without it and do a blind tasting because I think that the carapils made a difference. But man, you know how easy it is to fool yourself. 
Yeah, you'd have to do a blind triangle or something. Yeah, right, and good luck with that. And then that. wheat and rye, well, wheat and rye, I, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree that, you know, they're doing something to the flavor and the, you know, added some haze. Um, whether it adds a fullness, I don't know. So I don't know exactly where I was going with this question other than to pick on caterpillars. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I pick definitely... on because I don't really understand what it does. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of the same way. I hardly ever use it, but like I said, I tried it recently just to see what it did, and I wouldn't swear that it did anything. Okay, so now we're on to the big one that you and I have gone around and around on many, many times. So uh, we'll just the question, agree to disagree on it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Is rye actually spicy? A blind tasting? Do different brands actually make a difference? Uh, and then uh, I indicate my opinion. <laughs> I just say more experiments are needed. Yeah, right. This is this is uh, where we get back into that genetic mutation kind of thing. Um, I I find that rye can definitely be spicy. Uh, my wife even picked it out in a beer recently. Uh, I find that different rye malts have different degrees of that. Uh, I found that Brees rye malt, which is what I used for years and years and years, definitely had a spiciness to it uh, besides the earthiness. Uh, I started using uh, continental rye malts. You know, I can't remember who, but it was from somewhere in Europe. And I found much, much less flavor in it. These days, I use uh, the rye malt that comes from Mecca grade. And man, there is just no doubt in your as a matter of fact man i'm going to send you some of this stuff because i want you to try it uh and and see see if you get it because i think that the mecca grade malt is very very full flavored and definitely has a spiciness to it cool so so what when you use rye malt whose do you use or or don't you use it you know, that's something that I've struggled with for years is trying to keep track of what monsters I'm actually purchasing. <laughs> and then go to the shop. I, yeah. I'll, I'm willing to bet it's probably Brees since they're like right here in town. Uh, yeah. You know, literally, I, I live within 10 miles of the malting plant in Manitowoc. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, the local homebrew shop is probably going to supply uh Brees over other brands but uh i but i can't say that for sure i'd have to go look it up or head back to the shop and pay attention so drew what do you think does rye taste spicy to you yeah i want to hear drew's opinion on this yeah uh, to me to me i always get less spiciness with rye and what i get more is sort of a weird conflicting Dryness plus slickness, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what I think when I, I think a lot of people talk about spiciness, that's what I think of as a dryness. I get a real sort of uh, drying, earthy character uh, from the rye, and then the slickness is actually more oily than what I get from oats. And the only reason I say that is because I've done some uh, rye wines in the past where I'm trying to remember. I think the rye was somewhere around like thirty-five percent which was a pain in the focus <laughs> to, to use. Uh, 
but that beer was so slick that it uh, like at first you if you if you first looked at it you thought somebody had had dumped like a, a tablespoon of vegetable oil in the, into the carboy and then over time it improved as it aged out but no I mean to me I always get with rye I get a dryness on the palate and then I also get sort of an oily feeling in the mouthfeel particularly as you go up in the amounts and Denny I think what your your rye IPA oh, is 18 18 20%, 20% yeah I once uh, made an imperial version of that with 60% rye I will never do that again. I was going to say, you hated yourself. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I made it in oh, my, my yeah. cooler with the hose braid, so there was no laddering issue. I mean, you know, the runoff went just fine. It didn't stick. But, man, that beer was intense. Uh, I think it was like about 1.100 OG, something like that, and 60% rye, and probably 80, 90 IBUs anyway, and... By the time the keg was gone, I still hadn't decided if I really liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, I, Story of beer. I, I like rye. I find it uh, the, the rye does uh, get the mash you're prone to that. You know, you want to use rice hulls with it. Uh, I've I've gone up to fifty to sixty percent at times. I think, and it it does it with you know just. Uh, a very full-bodied beer for sure. I, I can see what Drew and about like the the oiliness. Uh, yeah, it's 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 along those lines. That's what rye. And, does and the me. earthiness that you get from rye really is almost gets to be overwhelming when you get that much in a beer too. Yes, it does. It is earthy. Yeah, definitely so. And and that can be a good thing when used uh, appropriately. And I will have to say that 60% was not using it appropriately. And on that note, I think it's time for us to go listen to some of our sponsors. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH mobile solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play.
Because I, I, I know you have yeah. opinions about this one, Denny. Has anybody ever tasted a Koi Clogger that actually tasted lager? No, no. I haven't. Um, you I think know, you guys answered that one on the last one, too, didn't you? <laughs> Probably so, man. I, I mean, I, it's I, like, I think some of these questions were, uh, you know, were discussed on the forum or whatever, and uh, you brought them up last time. <laughs> well, my uh, my problem is all the all the quirky strains, and yeah, we we did talk about the cl- clean quirky strains, right? All the quirky strains that I've had that that are clean have all still in the background had some sort of phenol note to them. And nothing, nothing that gets gets me into that same ballpark as thirty four seventy or you know a diamond or any of these other ones, right? So, uh, no, I haven't had one. I've had some that are pretty dang close. Uh, but I also think if you're leaning into the strengths and you want something sort of logger like, you could always, I suspect, get away with making a hoppy logger like the uh, the Jack's Abbey's loggers that we were just talking about on the last episode and actually use some of those hop characters to sort of uh, cover up or hide the... Uh, I can't, the I can't tell you how many times I hear that suggested for people using quite yeast. It's like, well, you know, mm-hmm. this one is clean. Well, kind of clean. It's fairly clean. And if you put a lot of hops in, you don't notice the parts that aren't clean. It's like, wait a minute. Wait a freaking minute here. Then the answer is no, it's not clean because you have to try and hide the fact that it's not clean. Well, I mean, if you're, I mean, but again, you know, if you're trying to not make, you know, your classical Bohemian or German Pilsner, I think you can get somewhere in the neighborhood. But at the same time, I just had those beers earlier this year from Hangar 24, and Hangar 24 being one of the larger breweries down here in Southern California, and they had switched. All of their beers, their IPA, their uh, orange wheat, their porter, everything, over to using Voss Quike. And, you know, the only place I actually caught it was in the uh, the IPA. All the other ones, you couldn't tell. Yeah. I was well, amazed. Okay. I mean, the, the kind folks at Escarpment Labs just sent, sent us some uh, yeast to play around with, and... Uh, I got a message from them later saying, uh, I know that uh, you claim that you haven't found a clean quike strain yet, but we're working on some and we'd like to send them to you. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to getting some of those and trying them out because, I mean, I don't really need what people usually see as the advantages of quike, like being able to ferment at high temperatures and being done real quickly. I mean, for me, maintaining a high temperature is almost more hassle than a, than a lower one. But I, I'm still curious. I'd like to see if they can do it. Yeah, and it's for for people who live in warmer climates, you know, where that's appropriate. Yeah. You know, um, if, if they can have those options, it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, now, Drew's, I, Drew in Pasadena, I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff would be great for him. Well, yeah, except for my garage is actually too warm even for Quake. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. I, I think I have... Hey, 100, 100, 120 during the day. Yeah, really. I think I've tasted a, a couple of examples that came kind of close to a lager, uh, you know, quite clean, uh, that were fermented out in, you know, two or two days or whatever. Um by the uh, Lutra strain, I think I want to call that one out. Yep. I, I think 
I think that one is showing some promise. Yeah, by and large, yeah, these are going to be somewhat more ale-like than, I, you know. Yeah. A lot of examples are not really lagerish enough. Well, I'll tell you, I know this is a thing that people are trying to do because, hey, look, if you can make a clean lager-ish strain that can do things at the speed of Quike and with that same you know sort of temperature range or I don't give a damn about the temperature. Uh, that could be that could be a, a world. Yeah, it, it would be. Uh, you know, and uh, let's see if if it can happen. Okay, Dave. Next question, please. Uh, when will Fermentus stop telling people to use S33 for Belgian styles? I'm I'm guessing never. What do you say, Drew? When they come out with more Belgian yeast. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and for those of you who don't know. Uh, it's pretty certain that uh, Fermentus S33 is a British yeast, Edme Ale yeast, uh, but they they tout it for Belgian styles, and I guess theoretically, if it tastes Belgian, then it'll work. But I've never gotten any kind of Belgian characteristics out of it at all. Have either of you guys? No. Although, admittedly, I haven't I haven't used S33 that much. I, yeah, I, mean, so. I haven't used S33 itself at all, but I have used the uh, Edme strain and some of the other related strains. I think uh, either Windsor, Windsor or London, I think, is supposed to be the same. One of those. Hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll just throw out a, a, a reminder there. Don't forget, don't forget the Duval strain. Started as a Scottish strain, so who knows? Yeah, what well, over time. and if if you take a look at the forum <laughs> these days, uh, Mark, uh, aka Saccharomyces, is uh, talking about a lot of Belgian strains that uh, apparently had British origins. Um, I mean, my my last use of S33 was many many years ago. I bought a couple kits for Belgian style beers from the homebrew shop, uh, probably even extract. And this was back in the days before I think I'd even ever had a Belgian beer. So, you know, it came with candy sugar and S33 and stuff like that. So I assumed that that's what Belgian beers were like. And then I had one, and I don't think I've ever used S33 again after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't use it in a Belgian style. I'd, I'd use it for any uh, English yeast. Uh, yeah, in English style, if you yeah, yeah, you're doing an uh, yeah, English mile or something like that. I bet you it's a great yeast for that. Uh, you know, I would bet that it would be too. So, okay, let's uh, let's maybe combine these next couple questions because they kind of cover the same area, huh? All right, I'll mention them both here. Uh, yeah. If ash temperatures are uh, within the Goldilocks zone of, you know, let's say between 145 and 160 Fahrenheit. Uh, how much do temperature variations in the mash really matter, you know, within that Goldilocks zone? And does mash temperature matter as much as the mash time? And I'm talking about, like, total mash time if you add up all the steps and mm-hmm. you know, if you're step mashing. Drew, you go first. No, no. <laughs> yeah, in, in a way, that's kind of where I'm at, too. <laughs> I, th- I think that mash temperature does matter if it's a wide variation, say, you know, 10, 12, 15 degrees. You know, I think that you will see, like in your example, I think you're going to see a difference between 145 and 160. 
But when I see people uh, freaking out about, you know, they wanted to hit 155 and they hit 153, they're never going to be able to tell the difference. That just doesn't matter. And I think that mash time matters to a certain degree. Uh, I think that when I do, like, say, a 90-minute mash as opposed to a 60-minute mash, I get a very slightly more fermentable word. But, you know, again, that's one of those things that's hard to compare because you have to do it on back-to-back batches. And then you have to control your variables really tightly in order to be sure that it's the mash time that you're really testing. So. So, yeah, and don't forget. I mean, the the primary the primary thing that you want out of your mash is enough time to solubilize your starch, and enough time for the enzymes to act on that starch, and then everything else beyond that is gravy. Yeah. So what 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 are your thoughts on? Which is a, which is the reason why people talk about like doing you know twenty minute mashes. Yeah, right. And you know, and I've done a twenty minute mash. Uh, Dave, you do a lot of short mashes, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, I thought so, man. <laughs> I've been uh, doing short mashes for, I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> if, if you consider 40 to 45 minutes a short mash. Um, yeah, I early on, in like 2005, 2006, when I started all-grain brewing, um, I, I was doing partial before that. That's about when I started all grain. Uh, I ran a series of experiments like right away because uh, I wanted to know uh, what does mash temperature do, what does mash time do. Um, I found out, now this is my own ex- experience, I, I don't know, your your mileage may vary, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't find that the temperature really mattered all that much, at least as far as efficiency and as far far as uh, final beer quality um as long as i was in that zone um seemed, seemed like the beer was gonna turn out good uh, but i found out that uh in really short mashes the efficiency was still okay generally uh, maybe a little lower but the uh fermentability was significantly different in some cases if, if I went down to like a 20-minute mash or 20, 25, 30, um, sometimes uh, final gravity would turn out kind of high. You know, you'd right. less alcohol, less alcohol, less fermentable. Um, and other times it didn't matter so much. And I think part of that had to do with, you know, I was doing different styles. Uh, maybe sometimes you've got a Pilsner malt in there with you know, more enzymes in there say a munich would have you know there's uh, mm-hmm. more of it's killing out of there um but i found a sweet spot somewhere around 35 to 40 minutes where hey i was getting exactly the beer i needed and i didn't have to mash for a whole hour um that's great but well and i think that's actually the the important part is with both mash temperature and mash time i think the place where it matters is when you're trying to aim for some level of consistency. You know, if you're, you know, if as a lot of homebrewers, you're really just trying to make beer and you're trying to make good beer that satisfies you, you know, you have a little more wibble room. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I really do think that uh, the malt has the really deciding uh, vote in, in that 
uh, you know, in, t- both in terms of both time and temperature. Uh, most malt these days is so diastatically hot that, as Drew says, it'll convert if you look at it sideways. Um, <laughs> and so in, in that case, you know, temperature is not going to matter a lot. And I think that then what you are looking at to control your your beer is mash time to a very minor degree because, you know, it may be diastatically hot, but there's a difference between conversion and and getting those all the sugars broken down all the way. Obviously, things like, you know, Pilsner malt versus Munich, like Dave was talking about, uh, you know, that's, that's going to make a difference right there. So I think that what you have to do is learn about the different malts. This kind of goes back to when we were talking about using craft malt and stuff. You have to learn how the malt that you're using reacts and treat it the way it wants to be treated, much like a pet, huh? Absolutely. Remember, spay and neuter your pets and mash your malt as it wants to be mashed. <laughs> but don't try and spay and neuter your malt, right? I'd be really curious to see how the hell that would work. Okay. And on that note, let's take a break. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeast's Spring on the Patio private collection release evokes spring vibes and a change in routine as patios, beer gardens, and backyard brew days welcome a round of pints among friends again. This collection holds something for all brewers, novice to expert or modern to traditional. Mix up your hazy IPA routine with 1217 West Coast IPA and join us for the AHA's Big Brew Day on May 1st and brew Janet's Brown Ale with this easy-to-use neutral strain. And I gotta tell you, it's one of my favorites. Try your hand at a fruited, smoked, or one-of-a-kind Goza or Berliner Weiss with the tartness of 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis, or opt for the flexible performance and traditional malty flavor of 2575 Kolsch 2. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Okay, Dave, next question. Next. All right. Uh, <clears throat> how much do fermentation temperature fluctuations really matter to the average? The average non-finicky yeast. I, I don't know exactly how to define that, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's that's uh, a lot like uh, the mash temperature fluctuations. And um, my basic answer would be very little within a narrow range and more over a much larger range. Yeah, my, and my answer would be, actually, it's less about the temperature and more about the time. So... The thing I learned early on as brewer from uh, M.B. Rains, who's a, a world-famous microbiologist who knows more about yeast than I know about everything else in life, including beer. Um, her, her brewing stance, from a very practical point of view, was as long as you exercised tight control over the first three days or so, like when it's actually really doing its reproduction, you know, you're going through the lag phase and you're growing up your yeast, that you can you can have much more flexibility on the back end in terms of what your yeast is doing. 
in order to get a successful fermentation. And then, of course, there's things like, you know, crash mechanics and whatnot that just happen because of what cold does. So to me, for a non-finicky yeast, what really matters is that you're being fairly tight. And when I say fairly tight, I mean like two to three degrees or sometimes maybe four, depending upon the strain. Uh, you're being fairly tight during the first 72 hours of fermentation. And then after that, you get a lot more room uh, to play with. And, the, and you'll see that when I do, when I talk about like my use protocols for saisons and all that, very tight control in the very beginning, and then just let it go free. The And I used to do this all the time. Remember, uh, as we were joking about earlier, my garage gets to be 119. And I would do, during the height of summer, batches of like an IPA or a pale ale or something like that with 1056 or 001, whatever I had on hand. And for the first three days, because I didn't have good temperature control when I first moved in here, I would have those fermenters in big trash cans filled with ice water, and I would swap ice in and out or ice bottles and use that for the first three days to keep everything you know down in that, that 60s area, you know, like 63, 65. And then I would let it come up and you know be a little bit looser about my, my temperature controls. And those beers turned out just fine. So to me, it's less about the overall temperature wibble and more about the amount of time that you let it wibble, or I shouldn't say amount of time, the window in which you let it wibble. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I uh, I tend to try and maintain fairly tight and, and relatively low temperatures for the first, say, three to five days. And after that, I would just as soon crank the temp up uh, to make sure that it's totally fermented out. Uh, people think that that's, you know, like a, a diacetyl rest. Uh, but no, that's not why I'm doing it, because there's no diacetyl in the beer anyway. I'm doing it just to make sure that it, it gets fermented out. And speaking of diacetyl, next question. <laughs> when diacetyl, When diacetyl is, in fact, detected... Is a standard three-day diacetyl rest really long enough, or does it occasionally take much longer? And if so, when does that happen? Oh, boy, I get to use my favorite answer here. How long is a piece of string? (laughs) I mean... Who, who knows? Uh, you know, three days might be long enough. One day might be long enough. It may take two weeks. It depends to a certain degree on the strain of yeast you're using, the amount of yeast left in the beer, and, and the temperature, right? Because the whole idea of a diacetyl rest is to just make the yeast more active to consume the diacetyl. And there's going to be like a, a raft of considerations around that. Yeah. And... Again, this is also one of those places where when we talk a lot about yeast vitality mattering, you know, if you go into your fermentation with a, a vital yeast strain, outside of, I think, really a few, to use your term, Dave, uh, finicky yeast strains, like, say, any of the Munich lager strains, um, I think if you go in with a healthy and vital enough yeast colony, a de-rest almost isn't even necessary. Um, again, outside of the, those very finicky strains. Um, but even then when I've had like, and I'm using like the Munich strains, which throw a lot of butter, even when I do those for a diastole rest, I don't think I've ever gone longer on a diastole rest than two days. Yeah. Really? And that's just because I'm still going in with a lot of, a lot of healthy yeast. 
And so they just get the yeah, work Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I can't remember the last time I needed to do a diacetyl rest. Uh, I try and pitch a lot of healthy, active yeast for a lager and then let it do its thing. And I, I, I mean, I wonder if maybe the whole diacetyl rest thing uh, is like from the, the commercial brewing world when they're trying to get the beers out as soon as possible to free up the tanks and get another one into it. Uh, you know, if, if you're trying to rush things, then maybe the diacetyl rest is going to be handy. Hmm. Yeah, well, but I mean, also at the same time, again, to go back to those those Munich strains, in, at least in my experience, if you don't do a diacetyl rest with Munich strains, you can let that beer sit there for as long as you want, and it's still going to taste like a butter, oh, really? butter bomb. Yeah. So to me, a de-rest for those strains do absolutely make sense, and given that I think a lot of a lot of the the, the stuff around diastolus, a lot of the people, at least when I learned about it, it was all really associated with German brewing and lager brewing. It makes sense to me that that, that would be, you know, part of where that uh, that's learned from. Yeah, um, can I give you guys my experience with diastolus. Please, please. <laughs> no, we're not here to learn. <laughs> I, I've uh, I, I've gotten diastolus with my lagers. Probably more than half the time. It it doesn't always happen, but uh, I do tend to underpitch a little bit compared to others. But, uh, um, with respect to that, now I just uh, brewed a batch where I I split it. I I tend to split like every batch because I'm always running yeast experiments and stuff. So this this batch I it was a uh, American light lager, okay, um, and I used uh, S189 and half, and I used uh, uh, the Mexican uh, from White Labs, uh, the WLP940, in the other half, and both of them got diacetyl, and and we're talking, I'm a small batch brewer, so each batch was one gallon, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so, okay. So I pitched like. Um, it was like an eighth of a pack of one of S one eighty nine, something like that, uh, in that one, and a half a pack of fresh uh, WLP nine forty. No starter. I mean, this is a one batch. So a half a pack of fresh yeast in the both of them diacetyl. Now um, the S one eighty nine. It took two weeks for that to age out. Um, I left it at uh, that one. I left at room temperature the whole time. Finally aged out, turned out a, it's a great lager, right? Um, and now the 940 took three weeks. And that's been my experience time and time again. Uh, for, we're talking dozens of lagers over the years. It takes about two to three weeks for me, in my experience, for diacetyl to age out. But it does. It always goes away. The yeast will eat it if you let them. Yeah, that, that's it, don't chill it, it down right away, you know. <laughs> don't chill it down right away. Let let. Keep them happy and let them eat it. And and so, Dave, I have to ask: Are you are you greasing your your one gallon carboys or bottles with uh, butter flavored ham? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm using uh, butter scented uh, sanitizer. In there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, so S189 and and it's ilk. Yeah, I have gotten diastole from in the past, but I'm usually also trying to push that yeast to stupid limits. You know, with my 14 uh, percent lager. But Mexican lager, I 
don't think I've ever gotten anywhere close to getting diastole with that yeast strain. So that one was stubborn too. It, it finally disappeared now. The, I just, you know, it's still actually in the primary, but I took it in and I was like, oh, it finally cleaned up. Boy, there you go. And that's that's very interesting. Okay, and now the one that we will probably get the most email about. <laughs> the way I phrased it here, I don't know. Yeah. And actually, anytime you bring up this acronym, right? So, are the results of quote unquote lodo, uh, low oxygen uh, brewing, worth the hassle for the average Joe or only for special Joes? <laughs> special Joes. I. Denny, Denny, do you want me to do you want me to tackle uh, first? Yeah. And I, I want to I want to say before we answer these because this drew a lot of controversy on the AHA forum when it came up. Sorry about uh, that. Drew and I have never actually done this, so we can't speak uh, to the results being worth the hassle. So there we go. Well, well, that's not entirely okay. true. I've done parts of it. I've okay. never done the what, whole vibe. What have you done? Um. I've done the metabisulfite additions. I've done the uh, reduction of air, uh, the reduced aeration in the water. Um, what else was there? There's one other step I did. I mean, uh, uh, truthfully, I mean, the, one of the things with Lodo is that there's a lot of steps. So let's just lay the groundwork for, uh, for people who haven't who haven't read about Lodo in the past. Uh, there is a group of brewers, and they are largely very centered on the idea of trying to replicate what they consider to be the the perfect malt character found in German beers, particularly uh, German lagers. Um, and so they've gone through years and years of scientific study and things like Kunz and, you know, all the big brewing manuals and, you know, looking at like some of the things that modern German breweries do and some, and other modern breweries as well to try and scavenge and remove oxygen from as much of the brewing process as possible. And the argument being that oxygen at any place in the brewing process, except for while, you know, trying to generate sterols for yeast, is going to damage uh, the malt character and the other flavors in the beer. Now, a couple things, and this is, uh, <laughs> this is my take on things. So a couple things is, yes, they're absolutely right that there are a lot of high-tech German breweries that do a lot of this sort of stuff, like no copper anywhere near the, uh, near the, um, the beer, all stainless steel, Oxygen scavenging chemicals used left and right, you know, for various things. As much uh, oxygen removal from the water and various other bits. And I'm not kidding. You can go to uh, what's their current website? German. Uh, I don't even remember. Um, but you can go there and you can actually see, uh, you know, like in their Bible, there's a lot of different steps that, that to follow, and, and they're all based in you know various bits of practices and things pulled from research. Um. Now, having said that, and I've had other people's Lodo's, Lodo beers, and then, like I said, I've done some of the steps, uh, but not all of it, because I don't have the time for that, and I don't actually have the gear for it, not in the way that they, they want it to be done. Um, does it make a difference? Um, in the beers that I've tried, now, keep in mind, I haven't tried you know, side-by-side comparisons of the same, uh, the, the same recipe brewed two different ways, but in the beers I've tasted that have been exposed to me as being Lodo, I mean, one could argue that there is a... Um, a sort of a brighter malt character, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, however, I think truly that only matters if you're trying to replicate certain styles of beer. If you're if you're really trying to go for that perfect pilsner, that perfect Tellus, something like that, and it's really good, it's really driving you nuts. Because at the same time, if you go around Germany, there are a lot of breweries 
that aren't doing anything close to Lodo and making really great German beer. So, and I think in our experience and talking with some of our friends who have done more Lodo work than, than either of us have, um, and Denny, you can back me up on this as well. There are elements of doing Lodo practices that don't necessarily work for other styles of beer, like, say, IPA. Yeah, uh, Jeff Rankert has uh, done some experimentation using it for lagers, and he uh, he speaks fairly highly of it. Uh, he said that he tried it on some English styles, and they just didn't turn out right at all, you know. Uh, and I think that maybe there are some styles of beer that depend on that little bit of oxidation to give them their, their classic uh, expected flavor. For me, the whole issue is not as much about beer quality as it is um, the process itself. I brew these days a lot more for the enjoyment of brewing than for the beer that comes out the other end. Now, that doesn't mean I don't care about the beer, that I, I don't want to try and make good beer, but it means that anything I do for the beer is tempered by if I'm going to enjoy doing that stuff to make it. And to tell you the truth, I'm really happy with my process now in terms of the beer that comes out and the fun that I have making the beer. And I just don't feel like going to any more hassle. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's really easy. You just, you know, make your sour gut, you know, and stuff like that. Great. It may be easy. I don't care. I don't want to do it. So <laughs> I would say that if you want to see if it makes a difference to your beer, if you're the kind of person who enjoys uh, strange, well, I shouldn't say strange, if you enjoy like actually doing more processes, learning about these things, go for it. it it's a personal decision, and it ain't for me. Yeah, right. And again, I mean, that's the same thing that we tell people all the time with Simple Brewing is that if there are elements to things that you're doing, no matter how much I would look at you sideways at the, at the fact that you're doing them. Decoction, uh, yeah. Um, I, if there, if those are things that you enjoy doing, I'm sure as hell not going to crap on you wanting to do them. Uh, however, where I do draw a line is when you tell me that I'm a bad person. <laughs> because I'm not doing uh-huh. There we have it. Yeah, I think I think that has a lot to do with it. I think that uh, maybe when when these concepts were first presented, they were presented in a way that uh, kind of was intended to make you feel like if you weren't doing it, you were going to be inferior. And whether or not that was intended, that was kind of the way it came across, and that turned a lot of people off. Yeah, since then I think that uh, both sides of the uh, of the discussion have moderated their viewpoints somewhat. So it's kind of like, you know, is it worth it to you to do it? If so, then do it. Uh, it it's not for me. Uh, it's not for Drew. So, well, Dave, have you ever tried anything? I mean, I, I um, I've I've used uh, like uh, metabisulfite to try to reduce oxygen in the in the mash and even at packaging a difference but it, well, i'm but i'm not following the all the special steps that are in between you know I, i'm doing everything wrong so <laughs> i'll probably just never know i think when you know, when the method well but i'll also tell people remember that you know in the past you know denny and i have both uh, touted the use of brutan b you know which is a, a long chain tannic acid 
which is effectively, I mean, it's not really oxygen scavenging, but it, you know, it, it it deals with you know taking the oxygen out and whatnot. And we've actually been impressed with the results of that. So it's kind of like some of the same idea as the metabisulfite, but just a different mechanism to get there. And we felt like even just doing our uh, non-Lodo process and using Brutan B, you got differences yeah, in the beer. Yeah, and that's a whole heck of a lot easier. So. Yep. That's Barely right. Moving through chemistry. I think it probably makes a difference. I just uh, don't know that I care enough to... That's that's right to, where I'm at, Kind of like you guys. Yeah, you know? yeah. 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 If, so. if, it, if it, it may make a difference very well... I don't care because I'm not going to do it. So, right, it's it's not for everyone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if it is for you, yeah, that's right. Go, go for, for it. it. Uh, yeah. Go for it and let me try your beer yeah. because I'm always curious. Yeah. All right. Next question. How do you guys want this? I don't know if you know how to respond to this. Uh, sure. Yeah. What, what's Gary Glass up to these I just, days? You know? Yeah, I just leave. Uh, Have you got to talk to him? I don't know. I, I haven't. Uh, yeah, Gary's yeah, looking I for left hand. I haven't talked to him since just after he left the AHA. Left, oh, left hand now? Yeah, yeah, he's at left hand. Oh. Uh, Aaron, his wife, was just posting Great. on uh, on Facebook about a beer that he made, uh, left hand, his recipe design, uh, and it was used Indian spices and was being served at an Indian restaurant and apparently went extremely well with the food there. Uh, I asked them if they could wow. email me some. Cool. Yeah. And, email and, and, don't yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and don't forget the tikka masala. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and apparently it's a very special and secret blend of spices that went into the beer, and he's not going to tell anybody what it was. So, uh, But, yeah, um, you know, he seems to really be in, enjoying it, and more power to him, man. Uh, I, I miss him at the AHA a lot, but uh, that's that's the way life works, huh? I, I think we all wish him all the best. Oh, right? yeah. So, he's yeah. he's just such a super guy. Next. Uh, when are Denny and Drew going to get out of the house again? Anytime <laughs> this year? What is their escape velocity of each? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been uh, I've been out a few times. I'm actually going to the grocery store once in a while these days. And I have been out to uh, Ale Song uh, twice now. Uh, since the world changed, and uh, I'm I'm not in a hurry to go anyplace else. But on the other hand, I'm looking at options. Yep. And then for me, uh, now that I'm fully vaccinated and I uh, I feel uh, protected, I have now been to the stuff sandwich because of course oh, I'm always going to go to the stuff sandwich. Um, I've been to a new brewery in downtown LA, High Def Brewing Company, because. Uh, well, so my my wife and I have this thing. Uh, we have this deal. She she likes to collect furniture, but she hates to drive. And so, of course, we live in L.A. And so I drive places and, you know, go pick up things so that we can rehab them and have fun with them. And uh, the deal is I go pick them up. I get to stop at a brewery. And so I looked at her the other week and I said, guess what? Beer's back on the menu. And I stopped at a brewery to have a beer outside. And then went on my way away. So so far since since I've been vaccinated and all the microchips have been fully activated, I've gone to the stuff sandwich. I've gone to High Def Brewing Company. And I've gone to Eagle Rock Brewing Company. Yeah, so great. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward start to start somewhere. I'm really looking forward to traveling <laughs> again, man. That's the thing that I really miss. Uh, Drew and I have had a lot of fun traveling around the U.S. and actually all around the world to. Uh, talk to homebrewers and meet them and i would have to say that's the thing that i miss more than anything and i'm really looking forward to getting back to yeah 
you know, and it's been it's been nice actually. You know, like meeting with people on Zoom and uh, going into random uh, club meetings and talking and doing our spiel and our entertainment. And I think at this point in time, Danny and I both know each other's stories so well we could probably do them <laughs> yeah, right. for each other. Um, but at the same time, there is nothing quite like being able to be at somebody's brewery trying somebody's beer in a different place and having that conversation yeah, there. Yeah. So that, that'd be the, okay. the thing that I'm really looking forward to and is going to really be my incentive to get going again. There we go. Next question. Great. All right. Uh, what's the next big things going to be around the beer world as far as styles, trends, ingredients, methods, etc. Imperial Bale Age Seltzer. <laughs> God, you may be right, and that's really scary. Oh, no. Goose Island's already released one. I know. I know. I've seen it. Uh, I think that what I am seeing happen, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm seeing a shift back to beer-flavored beer happening. I'm seeing more and more people who have gotten tired of the pastry stouts with a whole chocolate cake in them, uh, of combining 42 ingredients into a beer, whether they really belong together or not. Uh, I think that people are starting to realize that uh, experimentation means more than just cramming a whole bunch of weird crap into a beer. And so what I'm seeing is brewers talking about Getting back to just good, solid beer. Uh, I'm even seeing a resurgence of the West Coast IPA. Thank God. And I'll, uh, and I'll actually answer. I hope you're right, Danny. Um, yeah, I do too, Dave. <laughs> and I'll actually answer with one thing that's serious. Um, one of the next big things I think going on in the beer world is going to be uh, people learning to treat the uh, uh, brewers who are and bar staff and beer staff who are women or people of color with the respect that's actually due to them. Yeah, well, good luck on that. I hope so, but uphill battle, man. Mm-hmm. Uphill battle, but it's got to start with us. That's so there right. we go. Next. Uh, let's see. Uh, what are your uh, peeves with respect to styles, trends, ingredients, and methods, and people like me who ask way too many questions? <laughs> I never have any peeves with anybody who asks a lot of questions because it, <laughs> it forces me to be nimble. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't either. I mean, sometimes uh, I look at some people asking questions on Facebook and kind of shake my head, going, "Whatever made you think of that?" But um, questions are good. That's how you learn, uh, and you learn whether you're asking the question or answering it. Uh, what are my peeves? Oh God, where to start? Where to start? Um, I, I remember this is supposed to be a short show. Yeah, right. I think I think I have a lot fewer peeves than I used to. I have learned to be more tolerant of people who are brewing and drinking stuff that you couldn't pay me to put into my mouth. Uh, it, it all comes down to beer is a personal thing, and it's all about enjoyment. And if you're enjoying it, even if I wouldn't enjoy what you're enjoying, more power to you. Yeah, and for me, I think... It actually goes back to some of what Denny had just mentioned in the question previously, where my peeves are still with people throwing everything in the in, in the kitchen sink into the beer in less than considered ways, and so ending up with stuff that's very messy. Um, so that's that's still my main peeve. The other thing that's also a peeve that it seems that uh, people are working their way through is hot burn. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. I don't like uh, – I think big part of the reason why I haven't liked a ton of hop uh, – or a ton of the hazy beers has been because of, of hop burn. But I think brewers are finally starting to figure ways around that and still delivering a lot of hop character. And, of course, my taste still goes for the more bitter of the hazies. Uh, but I'm old. What do you want? I've got <laughs> yeah, five right. taste buds left. And they, they all respond to bitterness. So I think those are mine. It's just – it's still it's still the 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 careless ingredient usage in terms of of just randomly throwing things in there instead of actually thinking about it. I think that's a really good way to put it, man. Is careless ingredient usage? You know, I mean, I was reading the other day on Facebook. Some guy was making a goza and it had lime in it and maybe guava and I I can't even remember. I mean, he had like three or four things in it. And then he had been looking out at his garden and seeing rosemary there and wanted to throw some rosemary into uh, it. And it's like, think about this. Think about what that's going to taste like. But too often, I, I find that people don't do that. They think, oh, look, this is a really unusual blend of ingredients, so I'm going to put it in there without using the, the taste imagination to really think about what's going to come out the other end. Yeah, now, by the way, it goes with lime and guava and those. That actually makes some sense. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah, but the, I agree. the second that you throw the rosemary in there, it's like, oh, what are you doing, bud? Yeah, yeah. Where is that? So, Dave, let me turn this around. What's your peeve? Uh, well, you, you guys pretty much nailed it. I was going to mention goza too, uh, and and you know, having tasted uh, traditional goza from you know from Europe, uh, I, I I don't find the style to be all that salty or sour or anything like that. <laughs> you it's read just my a mind. mild, easy drinking beer, you know. So why are we throwing all this extra crap into it? So you, man, you read my mind exactly. I have tasted very few gozes made in the U.S. and especially homebrewed ones. They hadn't just gone over the top on salt. Well, but let's if, let's be if fair. It tastes like seawater. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> let's, but let's right. also be fair. Salt is. Salt is extraordinarily tricky to nail at the right level, you know, because oh, yeah. you know, just, uh, you know, five grains too many and suddenly everything tastes like a salt look. Yep. Um, yeah. But I, I did, th- I did think it was interesting that for a while we had that real trend of uh, everybody had a, a fruited goza that was supposed to be like your, your summer fun thing. And that, that trend seems to have died down. Yeah. Um, Oakshire yeah. here in Eugene made a goza that they put cucumber juice into and my first reaction when I saw that was, oh, my God. But you know what? That's one of the most refreshing and well-balanced beers I've ever tasted. You know, actually, here uh, in one of my happy hours, we just had a brewery that did, uh, has as like one of their flagships, a cucumber pale ale. Hmm. And you know what? It works. Yeah, you know what? And you know, and that's one of those things that you think, oh, that's a really weird ingredient to be putting in beer. But if if that's the only ingredient besides the standard beer ingredients and you do it with thought it works okay we have gone through this list dave <laughs> i i really want to thank you for joining this man i know that this may have turned into a little bit more than you anticipated but we've had a great time uh we want to invite everybody to uh, come back for the next edition of the world according to dave uh, <laughs> it's you know that would be cool. <laughs> these, these are some great questions, man, and we'd love to talk to you again sometime. And I guarantee you, I will send you some of this mecha grade rye to check out and see if you get any spice oh, out great. of that. 
Yes. So, and again, that's the mecha grade Rimrock Rye. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, thanks again, Dave. It has been just a real blast. And uh, have a great rest of your weekend out there in Wisconsin. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, me on. Yeah. Great, man. Well, I'll, I'll see you on the AHA forum and probably around in some other places, too. Yeah, you know you'll find me there. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. The World According to Dave. Hope you enjoyed it. We surely did. Thanks for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that we're on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Reddit Homebrewing Forum and uh, the Slack Homebrew Channel. You can find me almost all the time on the AHA Discussion Forum and uh, probably several other ones also. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can shoot us a voicemail or a text message at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 